0: Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to MPR News. So glad you could be with us today. You know the saying, life is short. But did you know that Americans are not living as long as we used to live? A report by the CDC found that American life expectancy is the lowest it's been in two decades. For people living in the United States, the average life expectancy is now 76.4 years. 76 years. And shockingly, another recent report found that Americans live shorter lives than our peers in other wealthy nations like Germany, Japan, and the United Kingdom. And that's across all demographic groups, meaning that even the richest Americans live shorter lives than their counterparts in other countries. There are a lot of reasons for this, including our poor diets, access to health care, gun violence, car crashes, and of course the impact of COVID 19. But there are also many potential solutions. State policies can make a huge difference in how long we live, and we can learn a lot from other countries. So this hour, I'm talking with three guests who know a lot about this, uh, about the decline in life expectancy of Americans and Minnesotans specifically, and what solutions we have to help us live longer, healthier lives. We're taking your phone calls, too. What are your thoughts on Americans dying sooner than people in other wealthy nations? And have you made a change to your life? Lifestyle and hopes of living longer? Tell us your story. Call us at 651-227-6000. Again, 651-227-6000 is the number to call. You can also call 800 242 Twenty-eight, twenty-eight, or leave me a message on Facebook. You'll find me at Angela Davis MPR. Let's bring in our guests, who each uh, each has a unique perspective on this topic. We have Jeremy Nay joining us. Jeremy is the author of American Inequality. That's a newsletter that uses data visualization to cover inequality in the United States. He was previously a a, a macro policy strategist at the Federal Reserve, and he is based in Brooklyn, New York. Good morning to you, Jeremy. Good morning, Angela. It's great to be here. Thank you for your time. And here in the studio with me, I have Colin Planalp. Colin is a senior research fellow at State Health Access Data Assistance Center, which is a state health policy research center at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. Hi, Colin.
1: Hi. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be here.
0: Yeah, great to meet you. And next to him, we have Paul Malik. Paul is an associate professor and chair in the Department of Health and exercise science at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul. Good morning to you, Paul.
2: Good morning, Angela. Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: It's unfortunate the weather is so gloomy out there, but this is not necessarily a gloomy topic because we're going to talk about some ways to turn things around. So the, the findings of the report really are sobering and You know, what went through um, my mind when I saw the headlines, it's like, I don't want to even want to read this. But I want to know from each of you, what went through your minds initially when you saw these latest findings on life expectancy, where we are now here as we look at Americans? I'd love to hear from each of you on this. And maybe, Colin, I'll start with you. What did you think?
1: Yeah. So for me, it wasn't very surprising because it relates to a lot of the work that I've been doing for uh, the better part of a decade. Uh, But it's really stunning how the problem has gotten so bad and how it's been so persistent. Clearly, the United States has some work to do, and it's important work.
0: So it's been gradually declining, but that the fact that it's continuing, what's stunning to you?
1: Uh, so this is a pattern that started oh, probably about twenty. 20- Fifteen years ago, United States life expectancy started to stall, to stagnate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we've been seeing over the past few years, before COVID nineteen and since the pandemic, it's worsened. Is life expectancy has actually declined? So we're seeing the the problem started to to look bad, and it's only getting worse.
0: Jeremy, what about you? Uh, when you first saw the the latest findings, what did you think?
3: I thought it was, you know, quite troubling, but, you know, unfortunately, not not too surprising. And I think one of the biggest things that, that I tried to look at when the report came out was understanding how um, changes were reflecting themselves across regions, right? Uh, Americans in, in different parts of the country can have, have very different experiences. So, you know, when you start digging into the, the data on the report, you actually find that you know, folks who are in you know, Mississippi or, or Florida, for example, had had much larger declines in life expectancy than folks in uh, California or Colorado, for example. And that mm-hmm. when we talk about the, the average U.S. life expectancy, we actually see some really stark differences across regions and certain communities in particular um, that struggle much more with the decline.
0: Mm, we'll talk more about that, the, the stark differences as you look from state to state, even city to city. Uh, and Paul, what about you, your initial reaction when you saw the latest findings on the decline in life expectancy here in the U.S.?
2: Yeah, my colleagues took the words out of my mouth. I would also say, not surprising, um, From an obesity-related illness standpoint, this is nothing new. This has been happening for the last 25 years or so. The rate of obesity has gone up, and unfortunately, that means that the rates of diseases associated with obesity have also gone up. We lead the world in heart disease, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, all these things we associate with an unhealthy lifestyle. We've led the world in for quite a while, and unfortunately, a lot of those chickens are coming home to roost, and we're seeing that life expectancy is going down along with that obesity trend and those illnesses going up.
0: Paul, when you walked in the studio, I told you, whenever I have conversations about obesity, it, it's difficult because people don't like to talk about that, but it, it creates health problems.
2: It does. And I mean, I just, I just said the, the some of the biggest killers that we have in the country. I mean, heart disease is obviously number one. We know for a fact the two biggest risk factors for heart disease are sedentary lifestyle and uh, ob- and being obese, which we would consider both of those to be somewhat preventable. I think where it gets a little murky is that we also have to factor in the environment, which I think um, is obviously a huge part of that as to why people are obese. And it's not just an individualized problem.
0: Mm. Um, one of the things, that, uh, another one of the things that stands out in the report to me is that, um, you know, Americans are dying younger than people in other wealthy nations. So if we compare uh, our country, the folks in other countries, uh, even folks who have a lot of money, right, access to all this stuff, they're still dying younger than peers in their countries. So what does that say to you, uh, Jeremy?
3: Yeah. So I think first and, and foremost, it, it really shows, um, some of the stark differences in, um, healthcare costs, um, in other countries compared to, to the U.S., as well as how, you know, ways that income inequality can also be one of those drivers. So there was a, you know, fantastic report, uh, that John Burn Murdoch just produced, you know, out of the Financial Times showing that Americans, you know, basically everywhere die far younger than british folks and kind of across the country and that even in the worst you know regions in the uk you know in blackpool in the uk in particular folks there actually live longer than the average life expectancy in the u.s and and much of that is driven by you know these really high healthcare costs that we see in the u.s ways that income is is one of those drivers too you know and and as you know Paul and Colin were saying as much of this can also be attributed to some of these healthcare challenges that are, that are unique in the U S and in particular um, drug overdoses. So, you know, the U S has four times higher rates of, of drug overdoses than, mm. you know, the next closest you know, comparable wealthy nation. Um, and so we find ourselves in this, you know, interesting challenge when we try to, you know, perhaps mimic what's working well in other countries, but, you know, struggling to find it um, lodged successfully in the U S.
0: And Colin, what do you make of that, that when we compare even the wealthiest Americans uh, to their peers in other countries, uh, still dying younger?
1: Yeah, so I think there are a couple of... Things to think about there first is the fact that if if americans make it to 65 their life expectancy doesn't look that bad their their life expectancy once you're elderly uh looks pretty good compared to different countries the problem is americans are dying young the the problem is americans are disproportionately dying before we hit 65 uh and there are a variety of reasons that that are uh that are contributing to that and a few of those are things that i've been looking at uh, uh, like he mentioned, uh, drug overdoses are a big contributor. We also see that suicide rates are on the rise in the United States. And uh, deaths driven by excessive alcohol consumption are also contributing to that.
0: And uh, Paul, your thoughts about uh, looking at other countries, even people who have access to everything they would need, Uh, here in the U.S., still dying younger than folks in in similar nations and situations.
2: Yeah, um, I think obviously Colin's right in terms of uh, once a person makes it to 65, their outlook looks pretty good. What hurts the life expectancy, of course, is people dying pretty young or dying younger than 65. If we compare this to other developed countries, I would speak from from my expertise just to say that this is still a big lifestyle issue. If you just look at how we live in the United States, it's, it's wildly different from a lot of more developed countries. By that, I mean, physical activity is not necessarily an ingrained part of our life and not an ingrained part of society. And I think that's an important piece to this is not just saying part of our life, because I don't want people to think that we don't go to the gym enough and that's the problem. If we look at how this looks in sort of other countries, people are just more active throughout the day, whether that's mm. um, walking from place to place, whether that's being more um, active just in terms of social settings, anything like that can play a gigantic role in how healthy we are. Additionally, when you look at where we consume calories and how we consume calories, that is very quite a bit. And I'm guessing Jeremy can speak more to that in terms of the equity side of that. But In America, we have more available, uh, overabundant calories to us than we do, say, in other more developed countries.
0: The United States also has a different relationship with guns than any other nation. And I want to talk about uh, what we know about how that affects our life expectancy. Colin, what can you tell us about guns, gun violence, access to guns?
1: Yeah, so when people think about guns in the United States, we often think about homicide, which is certainly a big problem in itself. Uh, but a lot of the work that I've done looks at suicide rates in the United States. Suicide rates overall are increasing. And the the number of those suicides that involve firearms is also increasing. So over the past uh, 20 years or so, that's increased from uh, from less than half to now firearms are, are used in the majority of suicides in the United States. And that's both of those trends are increasing. So that's a that's a big concern.
0: And uh, Jeremy, I know you've done some research that looks at uh, policies that can make a big difference in how long people live, and, and gun control was was there. What did you find? Exactly.
3: So what we found was that guns are now the number one killer of children in America, and that one in, in 25 American five-year-olds will not live to see to 40, which is, is largely due to guns. Um, but when we look at, at gun policy, particular comparing, you know, uh, northern states that, that tend to have stronger um, gun control laws, things like background checks and, and secure storage laws, we actually see much higher rates of, of life expectancy um, than we do in, in southern states that, that tend to have more lax uh, gun control laws. So actually life expectancy, you know, years lost uh, due to gun-related deaths is actually one-fifth lower in the north, in part due to, to these more... um you know, powerful gun control laws. Uh,
0: I'm sorry, Jeremy, could you give me that when you were talking about children or young people, what was that stat that you just said? Could you repeat that again?
3: Yeah, that guns are now the number one killer of of children in America and and one in 25 American five-year-olds will not live to see 40. So it's effectively, you know, one child in in every kindergarten class will not live to to see the age of 40 largely due to the impact that, that guns will have on their
0: lives. That is uh, sobering i am i'm I'm kind of speechless a- about this uh and when you hear that i mean this is before we even you know have a chance to develop you know uh maybe some healthier habits in life what is what does that say to you paul
2: i mean i th- i think it speaks to what well, i guess what we value in in, in this country um the c d c put out a stat not too long ago that said if you if you correct quote unquote from uh correct uh deaths due to, to firearms, our life expectancy would actually go up by 1.9 years, which to me is a pretty significant margin. That's obviously a somewhat loaded idea. But again, if you base it off some statistics, that, that would go up by that much. Additionally, when you look at other countries and you look around and, and you say that, you know, America is, is lagging behind in terms of life expectancy and we see other countries doing sort of the opposite and we just kind of look at it and say, oh, we're not going to change. I don't, we mm-hmm. shouldn't be surprised that life expectancy is down or all those sobering stats that Jeremy just said exist.
0: And uh, Colin, I know you've done some research on so-called uh, deaths of despair, uh, drug overdoses, suicides, alcohol-related deaths. Um, are, are these deaths of despair different in the U.S. than what, what we find in other countries?
1: Yeah, the, the the big difference here is some of these deaths of despair are much higher in the United States, like drug overdoses driven largely but not completely by opioids. But the other big concern and what's unique in the United States is we're seeing these increases. Suicide rates are increasing, drug overdose death rates are increasing, and uh, alcohol involved deaths are all increasing in the United States. And for the most part, that's unique in the United States among countries with advanced economies.
0: We're talking about a decline in life expectancy here in the United States. And I want to hear from you, too, as I talk with three guests who have studied this. What are your thoughts on Americans dying sooner than people in other uh, comparable nations? Have you made a change to your lifestyle in hopes of living longer? Call us at 651-227-6000. Or 800-242-2828. I want to hear your stories and questions. Uh, let's take a phone call uh, in Maple Grove. Uh, Sid is on the phone. Uh, good morning, Sid, and what do you want to tell us?
4: Well, thanks for the topic. I just wanted to get your guest's thoughts on two things I've noticed. I've got a son that lives in Tokyo, and they spend a lot less on health care, but seem to have a much better outcome uh, in, in Tokyo. And I think they spend less than half the GDP that we spend uh, in our country on health care. Uh, but he goes sees the doctor anytime he wants. And I've also got a friend in Belgium, and, and she has a doctor that comes around on a bicycle. And <laughs> they seem to have a better, a better outcome uh, in Belgium than we do in the United States. It doesn't make any sense that we spend so much on health care and have such poor results. Compared to other developed countries like Japan or or Belgium.
0: Okay, so uh, this is Sid who's asking about uh, uh, access to healthcare spending less. His son is in Japan. Uh, what do you hear in in his story, Jeremy?
3: Yeah, so that's exactly right. So in in both Belgium and Japan, um, residents there spend about half. On healthcare, what we do uh, in the U.S. per person, and yet they live far longer. So we don't see this relationship in the U.S. between you know spending more money and getting the returns on that investment in, in terms of, of years of our life. I think part of that is you know how those you know societies are set up in terms of the way that they you know care for their their elderly. Um, I think part of it is also you know some of these um, laws as well around you know how affordable they make healthcare. Uh, gun control restrictions, you know, drug overdose, um, you know, uh, work that they're doing there uh, as well. But I think the the U.S. you're exactly right has a, has a lot to to learn from these countries. Um, doctors on bicycles sounds like a, a great place to start, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah.
0: And and Colin, what are your thoughts about access to healthcare and how much of an impact that could make?
1: Yeah, I'd say that uh, first, Belgium and Japan are not unique here. The, it's the United States that's unique. Other wealthy countries all spend less on health care and get better outcomes than the United States. And that has, th- there, there are many reasons that, that go into that. One issue is simply how uh, health care is, is financed and delivered in the United States. We all have health insurance or we don't. And that health mm-hmm. insurance often doesn't work for us. And it's expensive. Healthcare in the United States is also expensive, but we're still, as we're talking about, we're not getting those those outcomes that we are and that we see in other countries. So we need to learn from what other countries are doing because other countries have this down, and it's the United States that doesn't.
0: And Paul, you uh, specialize in exercise medicine. So what is this? Um, what's the value of this access to preventative care when we look at at exercise and diet and learning what we should be doing?
2: Yeah, like I said earlier, I think when you look at the biggest killers of of, of Americans, um, we know that at least at least heart disease and hypertensive-related diseases are likely somewhat preventable, or at least we're able to delay them based off of being more active and being more healthy. If we're able to have more preventative measures in place and educate people on how to do that, and even more than educate, but give them access to being able to do that, um, it would reduce how much we have to treat on the back end, which, of course, is a more expensive uh, issue and also, again, leads to a, a lower life expectancy because if you look at a disease like heart disease, for example, um, that's a long-term, lifelong disease. And if we don't catch it until the person is in full-on atherosclerosis or has a heart attack or has a bypass surgery, then you're just playing catch up for the last 20 years of your life. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you start ahead of time by preventing it and re- reducing those things, theoretically, you're able to live much longer and not have to have that, not only like tragic care, but also that expensive care at the back end of 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 your lifetime.
0: Let's take uh, another phone call as we talk about uh, the decline of life expectancy uh, of Americans and what we can do to turn things around. 651 227 6000, the number you can call to ask questions or share a story. And Egan, Megan's on the phone. Hi, Megan, what do you want to ask or share?
5: Hey, Angela. I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes four years ago. And when the nurse called to give me the news, um, she said, Where do you want your prescription sent? And I asked, for what? And she said, for your metformin. Like, I am not planning on taking metformin. She said, you're not, you're diabetic. I said, yeah, I'm going to control it with diet and exercise, or at least try to. And I was really surprised that that first knee-jerk reaction was, here's medication, and no conversation about what I could do to stay off the medication and to keep my diabetes under control. Um, Since then, I've mostly kept it under control with diet and exercise. It's still a struggle, um, but I've been able to stay off metformin. Um, And then the last thing is that I don't necessarily always blame the medical facility or people. My uh, friend who's a doctor said oftentimes when he tries to address weight and diet, um, the patients leave because they don't want to hear it.
0: All right. That's a great story, a great, uh, story, uh, a great uh, question for Paul here. Um, so diet and exercise important, but uh, medications can help as well. And so she's expressing her desire, like, I don't want to do that. But uh, what can you tell people about the medications that are available that can help you?
2: Yeah. So first off, Megan, I'll- Congrats. Um, way to go. Managing type 2 diabetes through diet and exercises is ideal for sure. That doesn't mean that medication can't help in some form or another. Um, I think your story is not unique, unfortunately. And I, I'm with you. I don't, I don't by any means blame healthcare providers. I think this is a systemic issue and not an individual issue. And I think most healthcare providers are doing the best they can with the circumstances that exist. I think if you look on the CDC's website... Um, Type 2 diabetes, I believe, is the only disease that's listed with the primary treatment being exercise and and diet. So type 2 diabetes is a bit out of the ordinary in that it is one of the few we know that we can actually fully reverse the disease just through diet and exercise. Um, there's specific ways that we can do that. But if I'm just giving the short version here, it's something as simple as 30 minutes of, of cardiovascular work per day is enough usually to prevent diabetes and often enough to treat it. Um on the sort of back into that, regarding your question, Angela, about medication, metformin for sure has been shown to be um, effective, as has insulin injections, but if we look at those two things, if we consider type 2 diabetes to be, again, a long-term lifestyle disease that takes place over the course of sort of years of buildup, if I don't change anything based off that lifestyle and I just take those medications, our bodies are pretty good at doing what it is we want them to do, meaning that if I'm taking a medication, for example, insulin injections to treat type 2 diabetes... Theoretically, if I continue that same lifestyle, I can become resistant to that same insulin injection that I was using to override my already resistant insulin receptors. This is why, again, Megan Mazel to you for for using um, diet and exercise as a way to treat that because when you put that in conjunction with some medication, if it goes that route, those two things combined actually can give you some real great benefits from it.
0: And Paul, what about what she said when she was talking to the doctor? And The doctor uh, said that when I talk to people about, you know, your overweight, you should probably lose some weight, um, that folks don't want to hear it. Um, and so that, that is real. A lot of people don't want to have that conversation. A lot of doctors are reluctant to talk about it than maybe, because maybe it would be, uh, helpful, but they've had bad experiences with patients and they don't want to hear and they walk out. You know, I've gone for, to the doctor for the pink eye and it starts with, we need to get your weight. I was like, really? I think I have pink eye. You got to weigh me. (laughs) What do you want people to know about, uh, again, um, or even medical professionals to know about having conversations with people about their weight and how it might be a role, playing a role in, in their health?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's two points here. The first one is that there's no denying that having excessive weight plays a negative role in a person's health, right? We know that it leads to diabetes, heart disease, atherosclerosis. I can name them a lot. Also orthopedic issues. There's a lot of issues that we know are associated with high levels of obesity, um, and that those conversations do need to be had with people. I think another important point here, though, is that if you look at some of the statistics on particularly heart disease and all the diseases I've mentioned several times at this point, the number one risk factor for all of them is a sedentary lifestyle. It's not obesity. So Meaning, just
0: sitting too much. Just sitting, sitting too, too much. Because we work in.
2: Yep, exactly. And And most work right now is is what we're doing right now, just sitting down and, and not mm-hmm. moving a whole lot. Because
0: um, sitting down doesn't imply that you're lazy; it just implies that that you are required to sit to do whatever work you're doing.
2: Exactly, and I think I think that's the the other sort of half of this point, which is that. Often, I think we think of being obese as sort of a, a shameful notion, right? That like I have caused this obesity to myself and I am a shameful person for having that. And I say this as a person who has also lost 50 pounds in my lifetime. So I, I know the struggle of what that's like. To, yeah. Yeah. Back, um, oh. it, or the course of my, my adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know what that, that struggle can be like. And I think that sort of feeling of I've done something wrong here. I think it's important, again, to get across that this is a communal issue. This is something that we've designed a society that is built for not moving, and we've done really well at it. If you really wanted to, you can drive to work, sit in your car, ride the elevator to your desk, sit at your desk for eight hours, ride the elevator back down, sit in your car, go home, sit on the couch. And you can- you Oh, can honey, move. that was me yesterday. <laughs> and this is, again, this is not me trying to shame anyone. This is, this is the world we've built. And then we're shocked when people aren't exercising. And I think we have to look at this from a community perspective. There's just no way that we can approach this as individuals and say, you need to go to the gym more when, as you laid to us earlier prior to, prior to taping that- um, there's obstacles to going to the gym sometimes and there's other ways Mm -hmm. we need to ingrain sort of physical activity within society
0: um you're nodding a lot colin anything you want to add there
1: yeah i'd reinforce what paul's saying about how we've built our society contributing to this problem really driving this problem we've built our cities in ways that are hard for people to be active we've built our economy in ways that are hard to be active i i work at a desk manipulating spreadsheets Many of my days. And uh, it's, it's hard to get up and go for a walk. And then I have to drive and go pick up my kid across town many days. And th- there's just not a lot of way that I can get around that based on how our society has mm-hmm. been designed. It's American society is, is designed in a way that's that's killing us.
0: Uh, I want to make sure we talk about uh, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Cause again, we've stated the decline in life expectancy. This started 20 years ago. But what did the COVID-19 pandemic do to life expectancy here uh, in the U.S., Colin? So it's done a couple of things.
1: First, the obvious one is COVID-19 has killed a lot of people. And a lot of those people didn't need to die, especially since we've developed incredibly effective vaccines. Uh, and, and those aren't getting out to everyone who needs them. Minnesota specifically has great disparities still in, uh, in who is getting vaccinated and how long it's taken to reach different communities with vaccines. Uh, Minnesota, for instance, has done a pretty good job of reaching uh, people over 65 quickly with vaccines, but we're not reaching younger, younger Minnesotans quickly enough. But the other issue is that the pandemic and the stresses that the pandemic has, has caused in our society have exacerbated other issues. Uh, the overdose crisis, the drug overdose crisis in the United States and Minnesota was exacerbated and increased. It it ballooned during the pandemic. Uh, We see the same thing with alcohol uh, associated deaths in Minnesota specifically, that the death rate from alcohol, uh, alcohol diseases increased 50% just in the past two years.
0: So it made everything worse.
1: Oh yeah, it, it made all of those pre-existing conditions worse.
0: All right, and and Jeremy, what can you say about the uh, impact of the COVID nineteen pandemic as we look at life expectancy here in America?
3: I think what's most startling, you know, about what the the data shows on this is that the last two years, the the U.S. actually experienced the greatest. You know, two year decline in in life expectancy in the last hundred years. So Mm. not, you know, since the the 1921 to 1923 period, did we actually see life expectancy, you know, crash as much as it did um, during these last two years from, you know, uh, 2021 to 2023. And much of that is, is driven by our, you know, COVID-19 response. And in fact, um america when you compare it to, to other wealthy nations had a much larger decline in, in life expectancy did then did any of those you know other pure nations and i think it's you know exactly uh, re- part you know responsive to the fact that you know our vaccine rollout our, our mass mandate policies you know weren't exactly the same as, as we saw in, in other countries too um, and we see some of these big divides particularly across regions um, how certain life expectancies has declined much more than others.
0: Let's take a phone call from a listener as we talk about the decline in life expectancy here in the U.S. and what we can do to turn things around. Call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828 with your questions or your stories. Uh, in Minneapolis, Michael's on the phone. Hi, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. What do you want to uh, tell us?
4: Well, I'm a psychotherapist practicing here in the Twin Cities, and I wanted to just uh, mention the issue with access to mental health care and the problems associated with that. I've been doing this now for about 20 years, and in that time, uh, access has, I think, in some ways decreased, even though there's been a lot of talk in the media about needing to increase access. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'll give a shout-out to a segment done by John Oliver a year ago on his show, that really nailed part of the problem. And that is that as as the need for mental health care has increased over the past 10 to 20 years, it seems like in a lot of ways, the supply of mental health care providers is actually going down and going down considerably. I've had a waiting list in my practice. This is not a joke. I've had a standing waiting list for 13 years mm-hmm. for people trying to get in. Now, not people aren't waiting 13 years. They go on and find somebody else. But literally, I've had more clients wanting services than I can possibly provide in multiple contexts, and it seems to be getting worse. I'll say one of the reasons for that is is that the reimbursement rates paid by insurance companies for mental health care, at least in my field, have been stagnant relative to even higher inflation. So I know a lot of people who've left the the field we're very good at what they do. Mm-hmm. So I think part of the problem is, you know, when you look at alcoholism, death related, you know, statistics in in Minnesota that one of your panelists just mentioned, part of it is probably, I, I don't know this, but causally related to lack of access to appropriate care. And it's getting worse. Mm. So that, I just wanted to put that out there for your discussion today, which is, by the way, a great discussion.
0: Thank you, Michael. So what is the connection between mental health and physical health? Paul, what would you describe what what do you hear and what Michael is, is saying?
2: Yeah, I mean, first off, um, I wouldn't call myself a mental health expert, but I would definitely say that there's a pretty s- intense connection between the two. There was a study that came out of Duke a few years back that essentially showed that 30 minutes of high-intensity exercise in a day is, is relatively equivalent to a Xanax. And by that, I mean, mm-hmm. we're seeing, and I'm, I'm not saying that exercise should replace medication by any means, but there is definitely a world where exercise can help with that treatment of mental health um, issues, whether that's something as simple as anxiety or something more more drastic than that. Um I think one other thing that Michael said I wanted to point to and I think this is an important one is that he mentioned how much more attention mental health has got sort of in the media mm-hmm. in the last few years and nothing's really changed. And I think that's something that's evident mm-hmm. in this report from the NIH as well, which is that just because we're educating people and saying what is happening, we don't always see an outcome from that. And unfortunately, he's right. My, my wife's also a therapist and she has a wait list at this point as well. And it seems like access is, is a major, major issue. But I'll let my other mm. panelists speak to that more.
0: Um, what do you say, uh, Colin, about uh, what we're, you know, what is. What we're seeing with mental health care, people becoming aware that they need uh, and would benefit from talking to a therapist, but then they can't get one.
1: Yeah, I think the caller is exactly right. And I I think... uh... So so I'll mention some other work that I've been doing lately looking at adverse childhood experiences, and that's mm-hmm. childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. And what we know from lots of research over a couple of decades there is that people tend to, when when they experience childhood trauma, which is incredibly common in the United States, it mm-hmm. affects something like 50% of children, mm-hmm. they often rely on coping uh, coping strategies. And unfortunately, a lot of the time that involves alcohol or drugs. So I think the fact that the United States isn't addressing childhood trauma and the fact that we're not making uh, mental health care and substance use care more available to people is killing people through drugs and alcohol. We, we need to do better uh, in taking care of kids, and we need to do better in making sure people have access to mental health treatment and substance use disorder treatment.
0: And Jeremy, what would you say about the connection between uh, access to mental health care uh, and what we're seeing in a decline in life inspe- expectancy?
3: Yeah, there, there's definitely a you know a, a close relationship there, and, and I think you know the uh, initial point that you know we're really struggling. Um, to get the care that we need is, is totally right. 115 million Americans actually live in, in mental health professional shortage areas, meaning that there aren't enough, you know, professional staff to give them the, the support that they need. You know, we had done some, some research on this as, as well and, and found that about 43,000 Americans every year with an underlying mental illness die by, by suicide. Um, and, you know, that's one of these, like, heartbreaking facts um, of, of life that, w- that we've just kind of come to live with, even though there's more that, that we can do. Part of the reason that, you know, we end up seeing so many of these bad outcomes is, is we haven't really designed a lot of the care that we need. And instead, we often end up um, uh, putting a lot of people in prison, actually, um, we are struggling with, with mental health. And so, in fact, the three largest mental health providers in the nation are jails
0: right now. Mm. uh let's take a phone call from Chan hassan Janet has been waiting good morning Janet what did you want to share or ask
6: well good morning Hi. um i read a book about nine months ago written actually by a colleague of mine and it's called the longevity revolution hey. and it was written by two financial planners and a research person and they're basic thesis is that sometime between 2026 and 2036 research will likely allow us all to live to age 100 and longer. And so what do we do about that? And the book really focuses on creating a plan for that because of all the various implications around it. And it was a catalyst for me to do what I guess I would call a metabolic reset. And so as a result of that, um, you know, I, I Started doing intermittent fasting, watching proportions. I drink half my body weight in ounces of water mm. um, every day, which was a real change for me because I've never been a water drinker historically. Um, you know, just being really intentional around exercise um, and and the metabolic reset at, resulted in some um, good weight loss, um, about twenty pounds. And so all of that was in preparation of what we don't know is how long we're going to live. And, and I understand the research that, that you are noting today that we might not live a long life. And at the same time, there's a lot of research out there that we might. And so I just wanted to be intentional to really try to live well. That's kind of my, my motto these days is age well because of this research that I was
0: aware of. So Janet, you really turned things around. Do you feel better?
6: Oh, for sure. Absolutely for sure. And supposedly my metabolic age is much less than my actual age. At least that's what my, my um, advisor has told me. And I, I personally am a financial planner, and so I carry you know projections out to age 95, and I'm starting to get paranoid, like maybe I should get, include projections past 100, because the financial implications are also huge. Mm-hmm. So Mm-hmm. But but all but, those things, just being intentional about health, I,
0: I think is is really so important. Janet, thank you for sharing your story. Uh, let's take another phone call in Minneapolis. Nancy is on the phone. Hi, Nancy. Thank you for waiting. What do you want to tell us?
7: Hi. Good morning. Hi. Um, this is perfect timing because we're the, the prior caller was talking about living to one hundred and beyond, and for me and maybe others. There's not a lot, to, uh, for one thing, longevity isn't as important to me as quality, so I think the health mm-hmm. piece is more about the quality of life than longevity.
6: Mm-hmm.
7: For me, longevity is just, <laughs> I don't know how in the world I would afford to live to 100 in the first place. Um, there is no way that would happen Um Uh, I hear you
0: because of the expense uh, like where are you going to live if you're not working where's the income coming from can you afford to live uh, to be 100
7: well are you up on your you know you you need to have a lot of money saved for retirement a lot of people are behind on that Mm. so uh, yeah I I don't have a big incentive to improve my health for the purposes of longevity and I have personal and, you know, I don't, how are we going to have all these people living to 100 if we do not lower the birth rate? So for me, it's also a bigger picture as well.
0: Quality of life. Thank you. Uh, That's Nancy calling in. Uh, uh, Jeremy, uh, what did you hear? A couple of things. Janet talked about, first of all, drinking half our body weight in water. What do we know about water?
3: Um, Yeah. So we know that, you know, there are certain things that, that one can do, um, to improve you know your life expectancy, you know I think you know yeah drinking water instead of you know soda is is definitely a healthy way to do that you know eating healthy you know as as we've talked about already is is quite um important for that too, but I think it's really important to note here at this point that there are certain things that we can control, but many things that we cannot control um in the ways that that life expectancy progresses and and in two ways here, so you know like Low income communities in particular, you know, you might um, be living in one of these communities for for no fault of your own or may have fallen on hard times. But as a result, you're much more likely to be living near, you know, a toxic site. You might be more likely to be living in a food desert. You might be, you know, more likely to to be struggling with some, you know, health impacts. And, you know, even drinking, you know, half your your body weight in water will not, you know, prevent, you know, some of these negative effects of, of living near a superfund site. I think on top of that, we also, you know, see this actually quite stark divide in, in black and white life expectancy as well. And there's been some pretty strong research out of Harvard Medical School, basically showing that there's a, a five year penalty for just being black in, in America, in part because of the lower quality care that black communities tend to receive when it comes to things like cancer, heart problems, pneumonia, pain management, you know, maternal health as well, and so. We can do a lot to, you know, try and help, you know, eat healthy and and meditate and, and, um, you know, uh, take care of our our personal selves. But there are these, you know external factors that are sometimes more prevailing in America that can really drive down life expectancy, unfortunately.
0: Jeremy, I want to go back to something you said early in the conversation. Um, you focus on data about inequities. And your work shows that where you live in the United States has a huge impact on how long your life is and why. And so can you cite some examples of, of, of different states, uh, folks living longer in some states than in others?
3: Yeah. So in, you know, Colorado, in, in Summit County, uh, for example, where, where Aspen is, is located, uh, residents there will live to, uh, 87 on average. And that area, you know, is about 80%, uh, white, quite high, uh, income as well. And, you know, it's a, it's a ski town. So folks are spending lots of time outside and, and exercising. Uh, but on the other end of the spectrum, you know, we see places like, you know, Union County, Florida, or Oglala County, Oglala Lakota County in, in South Dakota, where the life expectancy in those regions is uh, 67 on average. And the, the wow. income in those regions is, is closer to, to $35,000. And then, you know, Oglala Lakota, for example, you know, it's about 80% uh, Native American. There's much higher rates of uh, alcoholism, uh, drug overdose, and, and much more challenges in, in those mm-hmm. regions, too. And so, you know, these numbers saying that, you know, U.S. life expectancy on average has has declined or it's 76 on average. When we actually, you know, look a bit deeper and, and look past the average, we actually see these really stark divides because, you know, America isn't a monolith. Right. And, and some of this inequality can really show itself mm-hmm. in communities.
0: All right. Let's talk about solutions. Uh, Colin, what would you say to our listeners uh, the most effective things we can do right now to start? Turning things around if we think that that there is room for growth.
1: Yeah, I was interested to hear what your uh, what your caller said about drinking more water. And I would add on to that drink less alcohol. We know that uh, Minnesotans in particular drink too much and that's killing us at a disproportionate rate. Uh, and I'm I'm not a teetotaler. I'm not telling people they need to stop drinking entirely. But we do know that alcohol is a toxin and certain behaviors with alcohol are more likely to harm your health. So uh, uh, CDC recommendations are men shouldn't be drinking more than two drinks a day and women shouldn't be drinking more than one drink a day. And that's partly because men and women metabolize alcohol differently. And binge drinking is a big concern. People shouldn't be drinking more than four or five drinks in a sitting, that that's contributing to that massive increase that Minnesota saw in alcohol-involved deaths during the pandemic, 50% increase in two years.
0: Paul, for someone listening to this conversation today, and like, okay, I'm going to turn it around. Uh, where, where did we start? And why is it so hard to really maintain a healthy lifestyle if we do start it?
2: Yeah, I'll answer your second question first in terms of why is it so hard. I think we've, we've built these cities and we've built this world where, like I said earlier, it's very easy to just never move. Um, the cities that we have right now, we've built as sort of monuments to capitalism and not to health. And it's just not easy for us to move around those cities in a thoughtful way that involves activity and involves a more healthy lifestyle. So the question is, how, how do we do this? The shortest answer I can give, and honestly, the best answer I can give, is to start small. This starts with really small, individualized changes. When your caller's talked about more water, that's usually how it starts, is something like that. then you go from there. I'm going to walk more. I'm going to eat one meal a little healthier. Small steps like that. I think the second thing I would add to this is that, again, I can't stress enough that this is not an individualized problem. And I think a lot of times we think of that too much. And that's why we come up with things that seem more like fat shaming, because that's not what we're trying to get across.
0: It's everyone.
2: It's everyone. And- the society we've created affects everyone, whether we like it or not. And I think in that same vein, vote based off of what you feel is important to you. And if, if health is something important to you, you should put your vote in that world too. You mean
0: the people who represent us, who create policies? Correct. Yeah. So ask them where they stand on, on this.
2: Yes. I mean we, we, access
0: to healthcare, what do you mean?
2: Access to healthcare, care, um, city planning, every even mm. at the most minute level. Again, we've talked a lot about how we've sort of built a world that makes it really hard to be active. I can't go out and change how that city is built, but we can elect people who can change those types of things. Mm-hmm. And again, putting what's a priority to us, put that on on your vote.
0: And Jeremy, what do you see as, as some of the things that we can do now uh, to, to change this to, um, you know, what are the solutions that seem to be working particularly well in other countries? What could we do?
3: Yeah. You know, I think some of these, you know, things that, that we've seen, you know, work well in, in other areas is, you know, expanding, you know, healthcare access. So, you know, in particular, you know, states in the US that have expanded Medicaid have, you know, saved basically 200 lives for every 100,000 people. You know, in part, we see, you know, see that in other areas that have tended to, you know, care more for their, you know, elderly or those in need. And also, I think, you know, if we're keeping, you know, healthcare costs high, just putting more, you know, cash into people's hands to, you know, afford that care. So things like you know, expanding the, the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit um, have helped add, you know, two years of, of life to, to states that have expanded that. Um, and that's, again, you know, something that we've seen work well in, in other areas where um, health care costs do tend to be higher, the, the more affordable we can actually make that the, the more that we can actually improve life expectancy. All
0: right, uh, I'm going to try to take one more phone call. Uh, this is Christine in Lakeville. And Christine, we just have two minutes left. But uh, what do you want to share with us?
5: Yes, hello. Um a year and a half ago I weighed 195 and I wasn't worried about it because everything was good in you know, all my checkups, but then my um my fasting glucose came back as 101 and it scared me. So I changed my diet and in 6 months I had dropped 60 pounds and my glucose went from 101 to 72 and it was all diet.
0: So by losing weight, you saw uh, some immediate benefits or over months you saw benefits, right?
5: I gave up bread, pasta, rice, and potatoes and changed everything to low sugar, like any dairy, um, granola, anything like that. I just changed that and it was all diet because I was unable to exercise because of physical ailments. And a year and a half later, I'm still down 50 pounds.
0: Oh, that's an inspiring story. And what do you think helped you maintain it uh, in just the last uh, 15 seconds here, Christine? What helped you? Just
5: because the health thing scared me. That mm-hmm. has made the huge difference by having that health factor.
0: The motivation. All right. Well, thank you, Christine, in Lakeville, and uh, and to our guests. We're out of time, but wow, you educated us a lot on uh, what we need to do, and uh, and also why it's important to um, just to also the quality of life that matters too, and to have the support. Our guest today, Jeremy Nay, the author of American Inequality, a newsletter there that uses data visualization to cover uh, inequality in the United States, as well as Colin Planap here in the studio with me, a senior research fellow at State Health Access Data. Center there at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. Thank you, Colin. And Paul Mellick, an associate professor and chair of the Department of Health and Exercise Science at the University of St. Thomas. Nice to meet you, Paul. This conversation today was produced by Samantha Matsumoto. Be safe and join me tomorrow morning as we talk again at nine.